Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Angel Deer is a medicine man and offers his work on sacred land through shamanic healing, energy healing, sound healing, breath work, plant medicine, and workshops and events. The Sanctuary is a community for all those who seek healing transformation, ancient wisdom, and a place to come together to create a new way of living and relating. This is the Sanctuary Podcast, and this is Angel Deer. So hello, everyone. Uh, really good to, uh, to be together today. And thank you for, for joining the, the conversation um, that we are offering to you here. And, um, you know, we've been trying to bring really powerful leaders and elders and people in the native community that really lead by example of our beautiful stories. And I'm really excited to, uh, welcome Brandon today. Hello. Uh, Brandon and I, we just spent the whole day together. We had a, a beautiful workshop at the sanctuary. Um, Talking about co-creation and especially the idea of co-creation with, with land and with indigenous people and, and how to do that in a authentic way, in a way where there is reciprocity, where there is honoring, uh, in a good way, I would say, like the, the old good ways. So I'm going to just read the, the bio of, uh, Brandon and then we're going to, to dive in. So welcome first, <laughs> brother. Good to have you. Here. Thank you. Mahalo. Yeah. So Brandon uh, Makawa Awa, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, is the vice president of the Independent Nation of Hawaii. He assists President Denis Bumpy Kanahele in the day-to-day operation of Puhonua Owai Manalo, the nation's sovereign land base, in which they are restoring the ancient and modern technology enable Aupua ecosystem. And that's something we're going to, to talk about. Brandon also leads Nation of Hawaii's delegation to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issue, where he has given many interventions on Hawaiian national sovereignty, peaceful coexistence, reconciliation, indigenous economic development and innovation. And Brandon is also the president of Napokokua a non-profit organization that advocates for the development of more affordable housing options for Hawaiians. Uh, Brandon also advocates on behalf of Nation of Hawaii at all levels of government on different issues impacting Hawaiian and their rights. Seems like you're a busy man. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So before we we go into all what you do, uh, you know, in Hawaii and the historical context of it, because I want to kind of go back a little bit in the past and explain what happened, right? And why we are here today, really having this type of conversation. Can you tell me a little bit more about you and whatever you want to share? You know, so people know a little bit who is present today. And, you know, if you have anything you want to share, that's more traditional for you, a better way to introduce yourself than reading your bio. You're very welcome to, to do it. No, that's that's good. That's good right there, Angel. Mm-hmm. And thank you for having me on your platform and, uh, you know, for today at the sanctuary. Um, 
you know, most people know Hawaii as, as the 50th state, as part of the United States. But actually, Hawaii was an independent country in the 1800s. You know, we were a, a, a fully functioning country, you know, not just a, um, not just a tribe or, or something. Mm. Um, we were the first non-European, non-American nation to belong to the family of nations. Um, we practiced diplomacy in the world when, um, when it was just emerging in the 1800s. Um, we were innovators. Our last king, um, his name was David Kalakaua. Uh, he built a palace that had indoor plumbing. He had, he had electricity. They had they had electricity before the White House had electricity. Okay. Um, in the late 1800s, uh, because of the missionaries and 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 you know um, our people were highly intelligent, we we um, we began to uh, learn how to read and write in English. And um, by 1878, we were. Um, one of the most literate countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we're, we, we were a country that was evolving, you know, that was, that was still rooted in our culture, still rooted in our ways. But, um, you know, we were, we were beginning to evolve into the world. And, and this is where diplomacy was going on. But at the same time, what, it, what was also happening was, um, we were building an economy for our nation, and uh, and um, we had businessmen that were set up here that that were actually the children of the the first missionaries that came to Hawaii, and they began to buy up land. Um, they convinced our monarchs to turn from a communal land tenure system into mm -hmm. privatized land, and our people didn't understand this concept. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a we didn't have a we didn't have a belief in owning land because uh, we believed that we were the stewards of our lands and we were the stewards of our waters and we were the stewards of our animals. But they convinced uh, our our leadership, which, who who are the kings and queens of Hawaii, um, to turn into a privatized land system, and this started the. Um, plantations emerging in Hawaii. And so the big plantations were like sugar, pineapple. Um, you guys all know dough pineapple that started in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. uh, dough was actually one of the people that participated in the overthrow, which would later happen in 1893. So in 1893, um, these businessmen from America um, had a lot of political power because they were, you know, they, they kind of manipulated our government and um, kind of kind of gave themselves a lot of power. Hmm. And so um, our last monarch was a queen. Her name is Queen Lilio Kalani. Um, you know, she's seen how they manipulated the government and changed a lot of things. Um, some of the rules they changed were you, you couldn't vote unless you were a landowner. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our people got um, lost their rights early on because we, were, we still couldn't grasp the concept of land ownership. And so 
the queen wanted to um, change and ratify the constitution to, to make it more equitable for her people. And when, and the day before she was going to um, introduce this new constitution that, you know, pretty much would have uh, taken away a lot of the, the plantation owners control over Hawaii. Um, they got a U.S. military ship to land its troops on our shores for the first time. And they proceeded to march down to Iolani Palace and they held up our queen and they held up our government and they, and they overthrew us. And our queen, instead of choosing bloodshed and instead of fighting, which they could have done because it was only one ship with, you know, about a hundred soldiers. We had, we had, well, we had way more than enough to take them out. She understood that, you know, at that time, it was, um, it was during the time of conquest. And, and, you know, if you lost a war, you essentially would lose your nation. And so she knew that, you know, they, they were trying to goad her and her country into war so that they could take over. Because if we, if we fought and if we defeated them and America had to defend itself and defend its honor, then we would have totally have lost our sovereignty back in 1893. Mm -hmm. So she didn't. Uh, when they when came to overthrow her, she what she did was she placed her kingdom in the hands of the president at that time, Grover Cleveland, who was good friends with, with Queen Lilo Kalani. And, and at the time, uh, when, when Grover Cleveland heard of what happened, because this, this was all people making these moves on um you know on behalf of themselves and, and business owners they didn't get no approval from congress to go to war or, or 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 the president to go to war and attack this free peaceful independent country they, they did this on their own uh, president cleveland heard and, and he you know he didn't like it what ended up happening after 1893 was he lost his presidency to a different type of president and his name was uh William McKinley. And William McKinley believed in um, manifest destiny. He believed in America should spread out and spread into the ocean and spread around the world. And so when he came in, President McKinley tried to annex Hawaii. And so when they overthrew us, the people that overthrew us declared themselves the new government the provisional government, and then they became the Republic of Hawaii. And what they were going to try and do is annex Hawaii to the United States mm -hmm. through a treaty of annexation, because that is the only, because we didn't lose a war, the only legal way for a country to be acquired by another country is to have a treaty of annexation. And they went to Washington and they were lobbying all their friends there. You know, they had money, they had influence. And they were gonna they were gonna create a treaty of annexation where Hawaii was gonna legally be taken and put under the United States. Well, our queen and some of her people, you know, they didn't want that to happen. And so what they did was they organized themselves and they created this petition, and it's called the Kue petitions. And Kue means to resist in Hawaiian. And at the time, we had about 40,000 Hawaiians living. Um, 
they went around in 1897 and got um, our people to sign these petitions. And, and you got to imagine at that time, we didn't have roads going all the way our islands, connecting all our villages. Some of these villages were so remote that you actually had to get to them by canoe. You had to sail to them. Mm. So when, when the petitions were done, they actually got 38,000 out of the 40,000 that were living to sign these petitions against annexation. And our queen took these petitions in 1898 to Congress. And she began to lobby and she began to say that our people didn't believe, you know, in this, this treaty of annexation. They wanted their country back. And what she was able to do was actually turn Congress. And wow. um, in order to have a treaty of annexation, you have to get two-thirds majority in Congress. And they had two-thirds majority in the beginning. But when she presented these petitions to them, they lost the two-thirds majority. And so there was never a treaty of annexation to legally acquire Hawaii into the United States. And so what ended up happening was they pushed through a joint resolution and they just took Hawaii, you know. It's, it's uh, I mean, I'm just, you know, I've never heard the detail of that story and I read about it and it's just so poignant to hear about it uh, from you. Um, I'm guessing what was obviously the queen, you know, was very wise in, in how she was seeing what might happen, you know, if there was a war or if there was resistance. But I wonder what was the reaction of the people like, because, you know, in many stories or many territories, when the United States came, right, a lot of people just rebels, went to war and then the U.S. took over, right? It happened in other other places in the world. So do you think that non-resistance, that kind of uh, way was, is very deeply ingrained because of the way of living of people, the way of believing, or they were just following their queen? What is that, that people didn't just rise up and say, hey, we're going to kick those people out? I think, well, first of all, they, our people believed in our queen. You know, they believed she knew, you know, what she was doing. Um, it wasn't like all of our people were, were happy, just were like, with being peaceful. Um, some of our people were, were ready to revolt and rebel and go to war. And these people were quickly kind of, um, scooped up and arrested and put into prisons and, and, mm -hmm. and with being hanged and, and treason and all of that. And, and so... You know, there were factions that were ready to go to war. They just didn't do it. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't get to that point. It didn't escalate to where, you know, there was an all-out rebellion. Um, mm -hmm. What ended up happening was, you know, our, our, our country was stolen through joint resolution. And, and um, every, all of those people, all of those Hawaiians that signed the Kuei petition, the 38,000 people that signed that petition, they ended up becoming enemies of the state when, when Hawaii became a territory of the United States. They were blackballed. They were persecuted. Um, 
our people were, were went from having, you know, like a, a real status in society to becoming, um, you know, just people that that um, were on the outside of society. They they be they started to uh, break down our. Um, they made it illegal to speak Hawaiian language mm-hmm. in public. Um, they began to Americanize us because they didn't want uh, they didn't want our people to rebel. They 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 wanted us to keep on this track of being colonized and Americanized. And so, and 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 you know, just to think that that was just a century and and you know, 128, 129 years ago that we were an independent country. And and you fast forward to today and, and how people have have forgotten about that and they don't know about things. Nobody does. Yeah. Outside of life, outside of the, you know, the academia that study these things. But this is this is what happens when you when you denationalize a people and you colonize a people and you steal their lands and you just, you know, it's it's a it's a form of genocide. You know, genocide is is um, is not just what happened to the Jewish people and what happened to the the um, the, the African American, you know, the Africans in, in South Africa. Genocide is also when you denationalize a people, when you prevent them from um, exercising their national rights as a people, and that's what they did to us, you know, and and it's just. Trying to give context, you know, this is this is trauma that we've dealt with that most people, most indigenous peoples have dealt with a similar mm-hmm. type of trauma. Mm-hmm. Ours was a little different because we actually had a country. You know, our country, um, we were practicing diplomacy right up there with other countries too. We were brother and sister to the United States. We were brother and sister to the United Kingdom, to France, to Spain. You know, we recognize countries like Argentina for the first time. We welcome them into the family of nations. We recognize countries like Samoa, other indigenous countries. And I think that was part of the issue, too, is that, you know, we were recognizing other indigenous nations. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. Yes. Know, it, was very, it was very racist back then. Yeah. And, you know, we can still argue that it probably uh, still is, right? Because uh, when you don't let people practice their language and their song and their culture and their ceremonies and their way of life, even the change that you mentioned about changing the way you relate to land, right? And this idea of ownership of land, that it was not the way you relate to land. And we're going to talk, you know, we're going to come to that, but... So fast forward, I want to come to more recent time. So basically the country never ceded sovereignty, right? You've always been sovereign. Technically on paper, there was never, uh, that country was never really taken. I mean, it was taken over obviously, but there was never this, okay, we're giving away our sovereignty and now we are part of the United States. So fast forward, I want to talk, can you talk a little bit about your uncle and you know his story and where we are at today uh, before we talk about the project and what's happening, but politically, like in the last 20 years, what happened? Yeah, so so that was in 1893, our overthrow. So in 1993, um, there was a, a there was a, a, an 
official law, an official apology for the United States that came out. And it's it's called it's called the apology law. It's US Public Law 103-150. And in this law, um, America actually apologizes for the crime of the overthrow and they apologize for their part in it. And what they do is they apologize for the 1.8 million acres of, of kingdom lands that they took from our people. All of Hawaii is about 4 million acres and, and the kingdom um, held privately 1.8 million acres. And um, they apologize for taking that without position to our people. You know, and they apologize for a whole bunch of stuff. But what that what that ended up doing was, and that was during uh President Clinton, right? That was at the time Clinton was in power, right? Yeah. Yeah. President Clinton signed that law. And and you know, it went to Congress, both houses of Congress signed. So it wasn't just something that the president did. Um it was debated on. And 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 a lot of um a lot of people didn't want this law to go through because they knew the ramifications. A lot of these politicians are lawyers. They understand that if you apologize for something, you have to provide reconciliation. You cannot just say, I stole your lands in your, your country mm-hmm. and uh, we're sorry and walk away and then go back to business as usual. When you when you formally make an apology like that in, in legal terms, there has to be reconciliation that will happen. And so there's a reconciliation that is promised in the apology law where they urge the president of the United States and the Hawaiian people to come together to reconcile for this wrongdoing and figure out a way how um, we can be made whole, you know. And my uncle was an activist at the time and um, he he was being told and advised by an international attorney. His name is Francis Boyle. And um, my my uncle was actually, um, his name is Bumpy Kanahele. And currently he's the president of the nation of Hawaii. And so he was a longtime activist. He was always fighting the state because he knew something was wrong here. Even before the law came out, he understood that something was wrong with our people and, and, and the way they're being treated. And so um, the state of Hawaii actually asked him to be an advisor to the Sovereignty Advisory Commission, where they were gonna look at this law because this is federal law, this is above state law. Because the state wanted to know what was what, what is gonna happen now that they apologize because those 1.8 million acres are being held by the state of Hawaii. Every single acre that the state of Hawaii owns actually belongs to our people. Yeah, and the rest was what the private property, right? The, the rest you get to the four million acres that Hawaii is in total. That the rest is private property, right? But one point eight is public land, right? It's it's state mm-hmm. of Hawaii, right? It's state of Hawaii land, public land. Mm-hmm. And so what my what my uncle was doing at that time was actually occupying a public beach park and 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 teaching other Hawaiians about the law that, no, we don't need to go anywhere. You're homeless. You don't have a place to go. Come to this park. Come. We're going to start building right down here. These are our lands. Because this international attorney told him, if you wait for the United States to reconcile with you, you continue to be waiting. You'll be waiting for the rest of your lives and nothing will happen. See, reconciliation can only happen when two parties are willing to sit at the table 
to to fix a problem. But if one person is at the table and the other person is pretending like they don't know where the table is, the reconciliation will never happen. This is us at the table. This is the state of Hawaii. This is the United States because they don't, there's nothing in it for them. And so, yeah, so basically, of, uh, yeah. So Brandon, basically it says that you have to reconcile, but there is no agenda or timing or schedule or even consequences if it doesn't happen, right? If it doesn't happen, yeah. it's just basically a law that is not being put in place, right? Yeah. So this armed with this law, we occupied Makapu Beach for 15 months. And at the end of the 15 months, my, my uncle realized, you know, there were like hundreds of people down there occupying with them. So now we've created a critical mass where there's there's so much people that they kind of just put everybody in jail. And then now we're, we're exercising this law that the state really wasn't prepared for. And so we finally had leverage. We had leverage with the state to get them to maybe not reconcile the 1.8 million acres, but they had to reconcile with us because they needed us off the beach because we was making too much noise. It was a popular tourist beach. And you got to understand, tourism runs Hawaii. That's the number one economy of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so the state of Hawaii had to do something. And so what the state did was they gave us 45 acres in the back of the mountains where nobody can see you. Back on nearest to, to the mountain range, nearest the the watershed up at the top and they said okay we'll give you these lands if you promise to leave and so we ended up leaving and going to these lands and so right now this is where we reside on 45 acres of sovereign land where we practice autonomy we govern these lands so our nation right now is is about 45 acres big it's not 1.8 million acres yet it's not all of hawaii just yet it sees 45 acres. And what we've been able to do there is rebuild the independence in ourselves and rebuild the sustainability that, that our people once knew. You know, our people lived off of the land in harmony with the land under this system called the Ahupua'a system. And this Ahupua'a stretched from mountain to ocean, right? And, 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 what connected this mountain to ocean were streams, freshwater streams that everybody had equal access to. Everybody had equal access to water and land because we didn't have privatized lands. We didn't have privatized resources, privatized water. Everything was communal. Everything was shared. And so this system is what governed Hawaii even before our kingdom, even before our monarchs. This is this was the way of life for us to live in harmony with land, to act as stewards of the land. And this is where, you know, we want to get to another point where indigenous peoples have the ancient knowledge, the ancient indigenous knowledge of how to live in harmony with land. Mm-hmm. And that is why we are trying to develop these 45 acres in modern times, though. Rebuilding this relationship that we had to steward our land so that our land would protect us, but bringing in modern technology to help do that. You know, where we are, it's not as developed. You know, we live on the island of Oahu. That's where Waikiki is. That's where Honolulu is. That's where the metropolis is. 
there's almost a million people living on Oahu alone. And so people think of the Ahupua'a as something from the past that is not relevant to today. You know, people think that in order to save the environment, you have to go back in time. And, and we can't go back in time, right? We can't go back. We have to move forward. This is progress, blah, blah, blah. You know, telling us that, you know, we have to forego that way of life. We have to forego those relationships. But you look at what's happening in Hawaii today. 95% of our food is imported. Right now, our current aquifer, our biggest aquifer on Oahu that, that feeds this, these mil, this 1 million people in Oahu is poisoned by the military at Red Hill. We have fuel tanks that are stored right above our aquifer, and those fuel tanks were from World War II, and now they began to leak. They are in, in, the, in the span of 60 years since statehood, they are, they are making conditions you know, on our islands almost unlivable and unsustainable. Why? Because when they overthrew us and when they changed our language and when they went for our culture and they tried to Americanize us, they tried to bury that ancient knowledge. And that's why on these 45 acres, we're trying to bring it back. Not just because we want to celebrate our culture or we're, we're, you know, we're trying to do this thing, you know, where we're just trying to protect ourselves for, for this impending doom that is happening in Hawaii. But we're trying to create solutions on these 45 acres of how we can live in harmony with nature today, you know. In the, the modern world, right? Yeah. And you, yeah, you say Aupua as ancient technology, really, and also modern technology, right? That comes together. But Brandon, you know, obviously, so that relationship to land was lost, you know, in the past century, right? Over a hundred years ago. Right. So there is nobody alive, I'm guessing, that has known that in there as a live person, right? Or very few people were alive in the time where there was that kind of relationship, right? Even your uncle, you know, it, it stopped way before that. So I'm really interested, and I want to go more in that Haupua model, which is so beautiful. I mean, you've talked to me about it before, but how do you recover? How do you restore something that's so ancient that has been lost? And also then from there, how do you weave that with the modern world? Because like you say, we don't want to go back in time, right? We want to go forward. So how do we do that? The retrieving of this old knowledge and how do we do that in a way that's also compatible with this way of life that we have now? Or maybe probably different, right? But I weave that yeah. into modernity so people don't think like we're going back to caveman. We're going back to yeah. stone and fire, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, way we, the way we have done it is by going back to our lands, right? When there is no political barrier keeping us from our lands when we get to get on our lands and try and figure out how to live like our ancestors again how did our ancestors live this way our lands are still there the streams you know some of them might be diverted but the, the water that that where we're living on right now is there and what we had to do was actually go to the land and let the land speak to us because this connection that we had to our land, even though we weren't there, 
And this this has happened, you know, over a hundred years before we were even thought of. The DNA in the indigenous brain and inside of us, as soon as we connect to our land again, it begins to speak to us in a way where we can understand and and you know not not in a not in a like science fiction way or like a fantasy but actually observing the stream mm-hmm. observing how the water flows observing where where is the flood areas where would be the um the right place to to put our farm areas where would be the right place to to put the houses so let me let me kind of give you a picture of what an Ahupua looks like. So the Ahupua starts at the very top of a mountain range, right? Right where the, the clouds kind of kiss the mountains, and right where the, the, the mountains kind of penetrate the clouds and and begin to um the clouds begin to precipitate. And then they fall onto those top mountain ranges and then the, from the mountain ranges they go into these little channels these streams and then they come down the waterfalls and then when they come down the waterfalls and they go through our forest which had um ancient woods that uh, we would use to build canoe that we would use to um, build altars um, a lot of these woods don't exist anymore because they've brought in foreign plants and trees and just took over the whole area so when we go through these forests and the stream would, would be coming down the stream is is heading towards the ocean that is its only goal is to flow down to the ocean and this idea of flow is something that um is a big theme in the the constant flow of resources and water was our most precious resource when you live on an island or, or when you live on earth, actually. Water yes. is the most resource. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have gold, we didn't have silver, we had water. That was the most precious resource. Mm-hmm. And and the Hawaiian word for water is vai. And the Hawaiian word for rich or abundant, somebody that is rich or abundant is vai vai. Water, water. Mm. And, you know, this water, when it would come through the forest, now, you know, when it makes its way into, like, the plains areas where we would have our, uh, we call them lo'i, or taro patches, which are basically wetland, um, almost like rice paddies. And you see the rice paddy terraces in Asia and Vietnam, Japan. We had similar types of terraces and the streams would, would flow. You know, we would have, we would, we would make channels that go and take this water into these paddies. And so we would take water in to our paddies and they would go through all these systems of paddies. And at the end, that water, that nutrient rich water would go back into the stream, right? And then once it once it went back into the stream, now it would get closer to the shoreline where our houses actually were. Um, and then and then when it would get to the um, the village area where we would have all our grass huts, um, that's where people would use the water for different types of things: washing, uh, clothing, or or bathing, even. 
And then once it would pass through the village, um, it would go into the mouth of the, the stream, where the stream met the ocean. And in that area, um, when the waters meet and when the, you know, you have all this nutrient-rich fresh water that is coming through the lo'is, coming through the village and taking all of this, this mana and energy that we're giving to it, it now hits the salt water. Right around there is where we would build a local ia, which is um, stone-walled fish ponds because we actually farmed our fish. We didn't go out on a canoe and go looking for marlin or ahi or whatever it is. We didn't do sport fishing. We harvested fish inside these, these ponds. And, um, you know, the, the ponds had gates on top of them. And they're like sticks that would, would, you know, in between, you know, everything would be coming to like walls right here. Then you would have these sticks that would come in. And they were just big enough to where the baby fishes from the outside in the ocean would, would swim in to feed on these waters the salt and the fresh water with all the nutrients in them. This is where life is created. And so they would feed on these waters and they, and they would live there and they would eat and, and they would be happy. But then when they would get too big, they cannot leave the fish pond now. And that's why these fishes that lived in these fish ponds, um, they were the ones that would, that would feed our village. And then, um, but the Ahupua actually continues. You know, that water and that whole system keeps going out. It goes into our reefs and then it goes out into the ocean. And then from the ocean, the water would be evaporating and then it would go up into the clouds. And then those clouds would come back into the mountains and this whole system would start all over again. And so this is the Ahupua. And this is what our people's main responsibility, main kuleana was, was to ensure that this flow continues and that nobody disturbed this flow. And we had we had strict laws that that um, people would know already because this is, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. They understood that, you know, if you were going to gather fresh water, what you would do is you would go all the way to the top, into the forest, and that's where you would gather your fresh water. You wouldn't gather your fresh water um, down by the village where people are washing things because that water is already, you know, that's not good for consuming because, you know, it's it's unpure. Um, everybody had equal access to the water. So it didn't matter if you lived up at the top of the mountain where the water first started or if you were down at the bottom of the ocean. Everybody had equal access to the water and everybody had their place in which they knew where they could what they could do with the water. There was a certain place to use the water to farm. There was a certain place to use the water for cleaning. There was a certain place to use the water for um, consuming. And this Ahupua was a system that, that was created because we lived on an island with finite resources. You know, we couldn't go somewhere else and go get fresh water and bring it back. We had to preserve the fresh water that was there. We had to preserve the food that was being produced on an island. No, we don't have huge flat areas where we can just produce all kinds of food and all that. We only have certain areas, so you have to make do with what you what you have. And 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 these ahupua that we build, 
um, they weren't the original builders of this was nature. Nature showed us where the ahupua and the flow and how everything was going to go. And we started to live around these areas. So we wouldn't build our houses in low areas where, where the waters would constantly flood. We would build them up, uh, you know, kind of away from the waters. We, we would situate ourselves as near nature as possible, but also with the understanding that nature will do nature things. So, mm. you know, if, if, if some sort of disaster would happen, um, you know, our people wouldn't be put into danger. And that's why, you know, out of all the stories that, that we've had in our history, there's very few stories about natural disasters killing off a whole bunch of Hawaiians. Why? Because we paid attention to nature. So whenever nature moved, our people were, were agile enough to change. You know, at, at points in times, rivers and streams move because of different types of uh, climate changing or different types of topography. You know, things just change. We we didn't you, we didn't get stuck in one area. We had grass shacks. We could we could move. You know, we didn't need to live in a certain area for thousands and thousands of years. We changed constantly according to nature, and this is why it's so important for us to do what we're doing on our property on these forty-five acres because we're trying to show people that this is the way we will survive in the future. When you talk about climate change and you talk about all these things that are that are happening around us, we're constantly trying to figure out how we can manipulate the earth back into a more comfortable situation for us. You know, mm. it's getting, you know, the world is getting more warm. So we're trying to control our carbon because we want the temperature to come down. You know, some of this, these changes that are occurring, it's being caused by pollution, but it's also the earth. The earth cools and warms over over periods of time. There's nothing you can do about it. What we need to do is learn how to change and adapt and put our efforts into there. And so when when I when I you know when we talk to other peoples now, it's not just wines that had this system. Indigenous peoples, wherever you live, there was an indigenous people that lives, that used to live there for thousands of years. We need to tap into that knowledge. We need to we need to understand the way they lived. And not all indigenous peoples remember that. Just like us, we didn't remember that. We didn't know how to do that. The way that indigenous peoples will remember is if you put them back onto the land. And so it's so important that we rebuild this relationship that we have with indigenous peoples and indigenous knowledge, because that's the that's it, that is what is going to protect us in the future. You know, we I I came to New York um, just this past week for Climate Week, and there was a lot of conferences, a lot of people I seen, and I I heard a lot of times people talking about indigenous peoples and we need to learn from indigenous peoples and, and blah 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 and they have indigenous peoples opening up the conference with prayer and chants and all that but then by the time you get to the end of the conference there's indigenous peoples they're not they're not looked at understand that indigenous people's knowledge is more relevant today than it ever was 
indigenous people's knowledge is not for the prehistoric days. It's not for the caveman days. It's not going back in time. It is evolution because our people understood that we need to have a really close relationship to nature. And we also need to um, give back to nature. We need to feed nature. Just like our people on the Ahupua, we contributed to, to nature. We, we grew abundance on nature. It wasn't just nature growing itself and doing itself. You know, When we took something from nature, we gave back, we gave more. And, and you know, in our ancient creation chant, the Kumulipo, it talks about everything being created. This chant is about six hours long, talks about all the animals, all the, you know, the, the sea creatures, the flying creatures, the, the land creatures. It talks about all these things getting created over time. The last creature that is created is us we're the babies everything you see around us in nature is our ancestor this is why the indigenous peoples lasted for thousands of years because they knew their place in this world you know today the way the world is structured is humanity is on top of the pyramid and everything that exists in this world exist for our consumption. We consume everything. Animals, plants, um, minerals, all of it for us. Whenever we talk about climate change and all of that, they, they're talking about equitable consumption. They're talking about how do we uh, consume in a more peaceful way and all of this, blah, blah, blah. Everything is not made for us. That's what we got to understand. It's, 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 we have everything wrong. We have everything in the opposite direction. And that's why in our mentality, we are, you know, we're on the brink of disaster because we know that that's not right. You cannot just take from something and expect that to always be there, you know? Well, eventually you're going to run out. And this we understand because we live on an island with finite resources. We cannot just mine and take every you know, inch of this land without there being some sort of consequence. So we have to learn how to feed back the land. If we're going to take, we have to give back. You know, when you go to the store and you get the little tray where it's take a penny, leave a penny. Well, we're the guy that always go there without any pennies and we're constantly just taking all the pennies in there and we use that. Well, it's getting to the point where there's no more pennies to, to take. We're out of pennies already. And we have to change the way we live with nature, with indigenous peoples. And, and also at these climate conferences, I, I, you know, I, and I see it all the time in Hawaii. You have environmentalists, you have conservationists. They want to save the environment. They want to save this plant. They want to save this animal. They want to save all these little things. But they don't talk about saving our people, the indigenous peoples. You know, they want to save these things for their own um, use. But they don't want to save us. And, and the indigenous peoples and the land and the animals go hand in hand. You have to save them all. We have to do it all together because they are the ones that are going to guide you out of this. This animal that you're saving, 
is not going to tell you how to survive on this planet. They cannot speak these, these trees and this fauna that you're trying to save. They cannot give you any advice of how to live in harmony and how to save yourself. The indigenous peoples can, but you don't see that. You don't know how it begins. The reconciliation that, that happens when indigenous peoples get back to their lands, um, they feel supported, they feel empowered. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a powerful thing. And, and what we're doing on our land is just an example of something that can happen that, that we want to see begin to be successful so it can be modeled, so it can be shared with other indigenous people, so it can be shared with other communities. Because the people that's going to have to help us in Hawaii are the non-indigenous peoples. Everybody that came here and 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 is is you know is profiting off of our demise and our oppression. We have to we have to forgive them and work with them to try and figure out how we get ourselves out of this mess. We're done listening to them because they don't have any more solutions and you know, their solution is just make more money, make more money, and then we're going to figure them out and buy our way out of this. You cannot buy your way out of a natural disaster. You cannot buy your way out of um, the climate change that is happening, the, the oceans rising. You're going to have to learn how to adapt and live in harmony and bring that balance back that we once had. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Angel Deer. While you're listening... Browse the website at www.thesanctuaryheal.com. Yeah, and, and I'm so touched, and thank you, Brandon, for sharing all that about the how Puaha ecosystem and system. And I really love this part where you talk about this connection, right, which is really what it's all about, your connection to the land, right? And because the land has been with you for millennia, the way she can speak to you and the way you can speak back and the way you know how to give back is unique. And that's something that indigenous people carry in their DNA, right? Carry in your spirit, carry in your chanting, in your creation stories, in everything. And there's something really profound there. And I have a feeling, you know, that how Puha, which is that, you know, the river's flowing down, but it's much more than that. It feels very much about rewiring the mind, right? The spirit. Yeah rewiring our relationship with each other. Can you talk a little bit about that? How Puha has an ecosystem for the the mind, body, spirit, for a community, right? That's beyond just yeah. the the nature flowing of the river, right? But going a little bit beyond that. Yeah. So it's, you know, we're we're rebuilding a, a physical Ahupua, but really Ahupua is a mindset. It's learning how to live with others and being accountable to others. Like I told you, like I told you earlier, you know, we had strict laws that 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 prohibited you to use the water in 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 a in a bad way. So you wouldn't, you know, so we so that the water that fed people to drink, you know, you wouldn't go above them and and you know take a piss in the water or do something to dirty the water. Because that would affect other people. So, and if you, you were caught doing that, then you were dealt with swiftly, just like nature. You know, if you walk off a cliff, you, you know you 
you you got what you asked for. And it's the same thing in, in, in Hawaiian law. It was swift punishment because you knew better as a person. Mm. You knew that what you did would affect somebody in a negative way below you. Mm. So we had places where if you violated these laws um, and you were caught, you were dealt with swiftly. But mm. also we had places called puhonoas, which are um, uh, sanctuaries mm-hmm. that you could actually run to. And if you made it there before they got you, after you did these things, um, you were you were taught how to reform, where you went wrong. And 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 when you learned that and, and you, you understood where you went wrong, then you were allowed to go back into society. You know, you are a reformed person. But really, it, it, it was about understanding that everything is shared. Mm. Since everything is shared, you know, in society, water was free. The land wasn't, you know, the land wasn't owned by anybody. Since everything is shared, everything you do affects everything around you. Not just the environment, but the people, the lands, the waters, the animals, you know. And so it's this mindset of being able to have aloha to share with others. Being able to have aloha to understand that, you know, I'm not going to abuse this stream. I'm not going to abuse and take more than I need because this is supposed to be for others. You know, there's more than just me in this world. There are other people. When we went out to fish, we didn't go drag a net and pull up, you know, a thousand fishes. You know, we could, you know, they were all in this fish pond that we created. It was just going in there and we can just scoop up as many fishes as we want. No, we took one fish. Because that was enough for our family for that day. There was no, there was no need to hoard, because who who is going to hoard when there's when there's abundance growing all around you? And the way we kept this abundance from from happening and coming and constantly having all of this is because we only took what we needed, and we didn't take any more. And this is what fed Ahupua. This is what giving back to Ahopua was all about. And so now you can apply that to everyday life. There's a cause and effect to your actions. If you constantly take from things and you don't give back, then your life ends up to, you know, things start to deplete because people are getting tired of you just using others. You know, it's a way of life and sharing. You know, we didn't have... We didn't have a concept of hoarding land, of hoarding resources, because what were you going to do with all of this? It's not yours. You take what you need. We lived within our means. And this wasn't a poor life. We weren't slaves to the land. We weren't slaves to these, these strict laws or systems. We loved it. We loved to be part of a system where we served a purpose. You know, the taro farmer, that, that farm taro, he, he farmed for everybody in the village. The house builder that built houses for people, 
He built houses for everybody in the village, the fishermen. Everybody did everything for the village. Why? Because when you needed help, right? If you were a town farmer and something happened to your house, you didn't stop farming taro to go build you another house because your family needed a house. Yes, your family needs a house to live, but the house builder will come and build you your house for free or for taro or for whatever. You know, you can give them what you want, but it was his duty to build that house for you because that was the purpose he played in his albois. Because the taro farmer fed the Aupua every day of his life. So he didn't need or want for anything because everybody understood that their purpose was bigger than just themselves. Their purpose was to serve each other, serve nature. And this would serve you in the end. And that's the relationship that we had. This is the aloha that we have for people. And Allah is not just hello, it's not just goodbye, it's not just love, it's the opposite of fear. Fear is what creates hoarding. Fear is what creates hmm. uh, sadness, anger, jealousy, resentment. All of the problems we see today, the economy is run by fear, scarcity, all of these things. Hmm. Allah is the opposite of fear. Allah is the antithesis of fear, right? So whatever fear creates, Allah is that balance that holds it there. Because you kind of get rid of fear, you know? You just have to control fear so that it doesn't change who you are as a human being. And we so, need Allah. Yeah, sorry. I want to interrupt you, Brendan. No, go ahead. So... How do we go from this Aupuha system? You know, you were given such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of that, of those 2 million acres, right? You, you have 45 acres. It's very small, right? And you don't have the whole system, right? You don't have from the top of the mountain to the, the ocean, right? right? So how do we... How do you see going from there? Is there, you know, a plan? It's like, okay, no, we're just going to make it work there, you know, or we are going to take just, we're just going to need more land to really survive because you have to be, if some part of the chain, someone takes the water above you, right? Or someone polluted the water in the ocean, right? You are obviously part of it. So you are going to be influenced by that. And I want to broaden the question also, is that, enough because it seems like it's such a different way of thinking that we need it's a different school system that we need it's a different health system that we need right there's Every a whole way of relating it's not just the way we relate to land right this is a start here but there's so many other systems so how do you see the the political future of the independent nation of hawaii in implementing maybe zoos other changes or expanding that and maybe it's more a question for, for you, Uncle, but I'm sure you had discussion with them, you know, and yeah. how do we do it on such small territory where most people probably live on places that are, you know, private and they need to pay rent and they might have to go to work just to make feed their family, right? Because they can't come work for the community yet because there's not enough job yet or resources yet. So 
how do we scale that at a pace that's enough and quick enough so we can restore this for your people for the and for the whole world right not just for your people but for everyone right yeah and so um the way we scale this is is we got to begin now you know and our 45 acres is is really small and it's going to affect a, a small amount of people but that's easier to start now than changing the 1.8 million acres that has been overdeveloped, that has been raped, that has been taken advantage of. You know, you can't convince all these economies that have been built upon these lands that You can't take all that away. That's not what we want. We don't want chaos in society because people don't understand how to live like that yet. That's why we have to test pilot that project out now on our 45 acres where we are we where we are agile enough to change like i said we we need to get into the mindset of being agile to change so and 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 being at one with nature we have to be able to change as quickly as nature changes and so on this 45 acres we want to test pilot these technologies that can help redevelop our ahupua in our area but also we can bring in people from the government, from the state, from the United States, from other indigenous tribes, from other people that are non-indigenous that are just looking to, to rebuild this relationship again and, and create a, a different way of life because there is no other choice. We have to build out our area first now because we have the area, we have the government that, that, that wants this to happen. Not every, no other government in the world is talking about this type of systematic change in which we mm. all share with each other. We don't have privatized mm. land in the nation of Hawaii. Everything is communal. Everything is shared. Even the way we, we, we're building our economy and how we're setting up our businesses, we're setting them up like as if they were ahupua'as unto themselves. And these innovations that we're bringing in we're going to partner with these innovators and 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 create solutions for the state of hawaii so that we can bring in our own economics so it's not just us asking for money you know constantly all the time we're going to have our own economy we're going to be building things we're going to be creating things and these companies and these industries that we build up our nation is going to create shareholdership for these companies so that every Hawaiian and everybody living in Hawaii has a share in these companies. This is the, the economic part of the Ahupua now, because we're at the top of the Ahupua. This new invention and new technology is coming to us first. And what we're trying to do is make sure everybody has equal access to this. Everybody all the way down to the shoreline, the person farthest away from any of these types of ideas have access to it. The people that don't even know this is happening, we have to share. We have to do it first. We have to teach people how to live like this. This is part of trying to educate people through experience. If we want people to change, we have to be willing to change ourselves first. Mm. This, this utopian society that, that people think is impossible, that we're talking about how our ancestors used to live in uh, back then, if we don't test it out, 
Nobody will ever believe that it is possible. So we have to do it. And we have 45 acres where we're trying to do that. And hopefully this is a way where people get motivated and and they stop living in fear Mm -hmm. and they start living with aloha and they start following and and looking at some of the examples that we will be doing in the next few months, few years going forward, because we have no time to wait anymore. We cannot, just like we couldn't wait for the United States to reconcile with us directly, we had to take action. We had to occupy lands. That's how we got where we got. You know, the earth, uh, humanity cannot wait alongside and wait for these big governments to change the way they live. They're not going to. They don't see how it's possible, not with the populations and all that. Hawaii right now has about 1.3 million people living in it right now. All kinds of problems, you know. 95% of our food imported, poison water, over pollution, sewage, everything. All the problems. Filled up landfills. At the height of Hawaiian civilization, we had over a million people living in Hawaii. Almost the same population that there is today. We didn't have pollution. We didn't have a waste problem. We grew 100% of our food. All of these things are possible. It's possible to go back, but we need to, to, to understand the indigenous knowledge and the indigenous knowledge that, that we as a people carry as indigenous peoples only can be unlocked when indigenous peoples go back to the land. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm saying, Everybody has a role to play in reconciliation. It's not just the governments that got to reconcile with with indigenous peoples and all that. You as a person can do the same thing. Mm. You can reach out and you can reconnect to these indigenous peoples. You can, you can, but you need to build a relationship with them. You need to, they need to be able to trust you. And and that's going to take a while. And so that's why, you know, we want to help and kind of showcase that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good segue in my question, because very often, I mean, you know, we, there's a tremendous amount of trauma, right, that has happened to indigenous population in Hawaii and all over the world, right, that is still happening, right, oppression, uh, sacred sites where we build things that we think we need, and we don't respect that this is a sacred site for indigenous people, um, water access, land right. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about the problem, right? So it's completely uh, normal that as a consequence, you know, indigenous people can be very wary of people who are non-indigenous, you know, and having any kind of relation, right? Not even talking about uh, conversation, but, you know, commercial or any kind of discussion that could happen in that space. So how do you, I would love to hear, because I know you do a lot of partnership with not also non-Indigenous people. And, you know, we, we have a common friend that works with you and she's not Indigenous from Hawaii. So what is your view on, on that relationship and how, you know, do you see that evolving in the future so we can reconcile, so we can cooperate, so we can co-create? What do you see are the steps and maybe what do you think is in the way today or is not done properly to have this happen in a way that you feel as indigenous person is the, the good way to do it? 
Well, you know, because we have uh, we have an urgency that need so this needs to happen quickly, but it doesn't need to be rushed to the point where you you know you want indigenous knowledge, and you just want the knowledge. You don't want a relationship with the indigenous people. You don't want to you don't want to build that. You don't want to take the time to do all of those things. And and if you just take the knowledge without actually empowering and having the indigenous peoples, you're going to miss so much. You're going to think you got it already. You know, you, you, you spend time with one indigenous tribe for like one year and it's like, oh, okay, I know how they live. I know how they, they built the grasslands and um, that's how they brought back the buffalo. Okay, now I'm ready. I'm going to go and you leave them hanging. No, there's so much things. It's constant learning and constant living with nature that we still need to understand that even indigenous peoples need to understand. But mm. we have to build that relationship there. And we can't be an extractive thing. We cannot appropriate people's culture. Mm. We have to empower them to, to step into their place as indigenous peoples, you know. And the reason why I'm concentrating on indigenous people so much is because they have that knowledge that all of these climate change guys are looking for. They have all that and, and these climate change scientists and the governments don't look at it the same. Mm. They, don't, they don't value that because they, they, they look at indigenous peoples as barriers. You know, they, they, there's an awkward thing with them because they, you know, they, they know that they, they should be reconciling with indigenous peoples, but they don't, you know, they don't want to do it just yet. You know, and they want to do it on their time or their time. We don't have time. Mm. Hmm. No way for your government to begin reconciling with indigenous. You need to build a relationship and you need to rebuild that relationship now. And then that can be done, but you have to do it in a good way. Like, like Angel was just saying, you know, this is, this is not something that, that, um, that you should be rushing into, that you should be, um, forcing yourself onto them. You have to be, um, you have to work alongside them. You have to be patient too, because you're talking about people that have dealt with 400 plus years of trauma, of genocide, of all kinds of, you know, unspeakable violence to them. They're not so easily, um, you know, trusting for non you know, so you have to earn that trust. Mm. And that's friendship, and that's true giving, and that's true sharing. And that's true, like true allyship that needs to be built. Mm. You know? and then when there's an indigenous struggle and they're trying to save their land, sometimes you might have to get involved with that. I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but you know that that's 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 part of rebuilding a relationship too. Because what indigenous peoples are trying to protect is the same things that we all should be protecting. It's just an indigenous fight at first, just like Red Hill, where I'm from, where they poisoned. Oahu's water uh, aquifer. It was the Hawaiians that tried to stop them years ago, decades ago. This is not a new thing. Decades we tried to stop them, but it was only us trying to stop them. And nothing was changing. Everybody was happy just going along with it. Okay, it's working. But now it started to affect. The first families that, that, that the U.S. Navy poisoned was their own families, their servicemen who live in the village below that aquifer. 
their bases located below that, they were the first people to suffer. Not us, them. And now they know. Now they see. But it took them being affected for them to understand Mm. what we were trying to save, what we were trying to stop. You know, people have to understand that everything we do, everything we take from this planet, every luxury that we have that, that you know, we, we don't even question where it came from. We don't even question, you know, all of these things and, and that we have today. Where did they come from? You know, whose land are they stealing that resource from? Which land are they poisoning from? We don't think about those things, but we must, we have to. Because if we live in this global ahupua, what, hap- what, we, what we do affects everybody. And so we have to just change our way of thinking, change the way, and, and become more conscious and more thoughtful about these things. And it can start with the indigenous peoples because we, you know, we, we're living in a crisis right now. Climate change and our planet is changing. The peoples have that knowledge that, that, that can see us through the other way. We... We see a future, and you know, I I believe this is not the, the end of the world or the end of times. To me, this is the, the end of this time. This is the end of humanity thinking it's it's gonna dominate for the rest of you know the the rest of the, the lifetime of this planet. That's not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that world is gonna end. This new world is gonna emerge in which humanity and nature is going to live at peace and harmony again. And we're all going to thrive together. Not just saving humanity, but saving everything. We have to rebuild these relationships that we have with indigenous peoples so that we can understand how to do that, how to save the planet and not go back in time. How do we actually evolve? Then we will be evolving into a higher state of consciousness with the planet. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, it's, uh, I love this part when you, you say, yeah, we're, we're not really trying to save the earth, we're trying to save ourselves, right? A lot of those movements, it, we're very concerned about our fate, right? But we don't think about, <laughs> right? Indigenous people, right? To start with, right? Other human being, right? It's more saving, well, can I save my company or my economy or my, you know, whatever, I'm making money out of because if that goes wrong, you know, I, I won't make any money anymore. So I thank you for kind of broadening the way we look at conservation, which is sometimes it's a very colonial model, right? Because we, we create those state parks, but we don't allow, make them, you know, places for indigenous people, right? It's the state park, right? It's just beautiful nature, but it's missing the key component, which are the people that know how to take care of that. Of that yeah, nature, it's, uh, it's entertainment for yeah. us, right? It's like yeah. I'm in pay, or I can visit, and I get something beautiful for myself, right? But I don't think further than what is is really that I'm doing here with that state park, right? It's like going to Disneyland for nature. Sometimes what I say, you know, you go there, you pay the <laughs> you pay the entrance, right? You you feel better, and then you leave, right? Yeah, and you keep living your life as if everything is fine, right? We don't really change. <laughs> That because you think, oh, if there is state parks, then we're okay, right? The yeah. world is going to get better if we get more, more, more preserved, right? More places like that. 
And we forgot that interconnection, right? Those uh, rain with, you know, uh, pollution are going to come on that state park, right? Those invasive yeah. species, they don't know any border. They are going to go through, right? And the way we live is going to destroy it at the end if we don't change that. So, you know, I feel very much, and I have moments like that personally, where it can feel pretty doom and gloom, pretty dark. You know, I know a lot of young people, especially that are growing up in this world, when they start to realize what's happening, can feel very stressed. There's a lot of anxiety into, you know, for many people about what's happening. So I want to kind of finish our talk today about talking a little bit about hope or what do you see, you know, you, you say, well, you know, us indigenous people, we've seen that. We've seen collapse, right? We've seen ice age coming and going. We've seen draw and other things. Here we're experiencing at a fast pace, right? Like nature never changed that fast. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep yourself hopeful or what do you see as sign of hope or what do you want to share with people that are going to listen to this talk about how to stay in good spirit, right? How to stay, you know, joyful, engaged, feeling being, so we just don't close our hearts and we can respond to the crisis with a lot of heart but without the collapse that we might experience if we feel the tremendous amount of losses and pain that is happening as we speak, how do we, how do you do that for yourself? And how do you think we should do that uh, to stay in that vibration, I guess, that hope, that love? Well, you know, for me personally, the, you know, I used to feel like that before, before I started doing this work. Uh, for the nation before I started, uh, before I had the ability to go back on the land and to do the things we're doing. And what gave me hope is when I started to give back to the land mm -hmm. and when I started to be of service and when I started to be a true steward, I started to, to receive the blessings of whoever, whatever God or spirit you believe in, I started to receive these things because, because I was beginning to give now. Because I was giving, I was receiving, not just food from the ground, not just understanding and knowledge, but I, I, was, I, was, I was being blessed and given hope because I can see how I was, when I was young and colonized and I lived in a city and I, I never knew my history and I never knew my culture because I was taken away from our lands. We didn't have access to any of that. And I was able to go back onto these lands and, and learn from the land and from nature and from my elders that, that are starting to do this work again. That is what built up the hope was when I began to give back to that. And I started to see when I gave back Things were becoming, you know, things were just opening up. Relationships were opening up. I began to meet people who were doing the same things as me. And we began to collaborate in that. So this world didn't feel as hopeless as it seems. And now I actually feel like this is our blessing. This is the way that Indigenous people will finally get reconciliation, will finally get seen, will finally be noticed, will the... the uh, everything will finally be acknowledged, you know, because we will we will we will take our place amongst nature as the stewards, not the 
not take the place of our oppressor. And now you have to be below us. And we're going, okay, it's our time now to rule you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bringing indigenous people up to your same level. Because right now we are not, we're down here. You know, we want to be here with all of you. We want to go into this future together, playing our roles together. Just like I said in the Aupuaa, everybody has a role to play. Indigenous peoples and yourselves, the people that live in this modern world and, and, and you know, trying to find who they are and what, what, what is their purpose. This is your purpose now. because we're talking about climate change and the world changing and, and getting to be a scary place where nature is just doing its own thing. That's one thing, but I'm talking about what is your purpose to your community? What do you do that serves your community? When you begin to serve your community, you begin to see more hope, you begin to see more purpose. And I know a lot of you are already doing that right now. And we got to continue to do that work because that is the work that gives me hope. You know, when I see more people doing that, when I see more people stepping in, where I'm not just the only one volunteering, there are plenty of people coming now to help our nation. A lot of people are volunteering. We have so much people volunteering that, you know, it's, it's actually, it's making more work for us to find things for them to, <laughs> to do. We got to get organized, right? We got to be ready because people are coming now because they understand what is happening. But that shows me that there is hope for our people. That shows me there is hope in humanity. We have to teach the kids about this hope. We cannot just talk to them about the evils. We cannot just talk to them about the, the disaster that we're leaving on their plate. We gotta show them a different future. We gotta lead by example. We cannot just kick the can down the road and throw all our problems onto them and just, you know, not change what we're doing. We all have accountability that we can do ourselves. We have to begin serving. We have to begin stewarding. We have to begin giving back. Mm. It's not all about us anymore, gang. It's about all of us sticking together and getting through these times together. And I tell you, when we can do that, a new world will open up for us. Everybody that is not ready to do this, you know, it's, it's, you cannot change those things. They don't stick with nature in these next few years. They don't, they don't begin to rebuild this relationship. Life is going to be very different for them than it is for us. You know, you have to rebuild these relationships. You have to understand your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is not to serve just yourself. Your purpose in life is to be of service to others, to be a steward. And when you realize that, you have hope for the future. Thank you. I'm feeling this so deeply in my body and in all of my being, and I'm sure people listening, you know, are feeling this. Uh, you're right, you know, an elder from Peru told me uh, last time I was there in, uh, in May, he said, you know, it's like, I see all those new edgy or new communities, they're all praying for the earth, right? Everybody's praying for the earth, but nobody's planting a seed. 
<laughs> and he was like, for me, you know, in my community, you know, we, we pray for the earth. So we see, you know, we pray for Pachamama. We, we pray for the mother. But he said the biggest prayer you can do is to learn how to plant a seed of corn. Because, you know, corn is, is king in Peru and, and it's, mm -hmm. it's the God, right? He said, if you know how to plant a seed of corn, if you know how to take care of the corn, that's the biggest prayer you can do for the earth. You know, like seeding the earth, right? Planting, you know, like taking care of her. Mm -hmm. And I can feel that in the way you talk about service, you know, in the way there's this immense love for the land and in the way of the relationship, the level of relationship you are talking about, that, that giving back, uh, that's really powerful. So th thank you for, for sharing that. I, I can't wait to come visit <laughs> to, to see your, your project. Give me one more person to <laughs> do something about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah i don't know if you have anything to share you know but uh i want to give you some of the last word here uh brandon and i want to thank you so so much for for sharing your wisdom and spending time on the land at the sanctuary today with me and i know people were so inspired by what you shared uh but i want to leave the yeah the end to you to the last word whatever you want to share and then we'll we'll just say goodbye and thanks to everyone okay thank you to everyone listening right now um i know your time is valuable everybody's time is valuable thank you angel for opening up your land opening up your platform opening up to to receive this message and i i just want everybody to understand and um you don't have to fear the future, you know. You don't have to fear um, what, what, what we have no control over. What you do have control over is yourself. Get in touch with yourself. Understand who you are and what purpose you play in this world. Be of service to others. Be of service to nature. Be of service to animals, to water. Uh, rebuild that 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 sacred relationship that you have with them, you know, give thanks to, to these things that you have. Like I said, we are the youngest species on this planet. We are the child. Everything is our ancestor. When you consume, give thanks for that, but understand that relationship that, 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 you know, you took and that, that whatever you consumed, needs to be replenished so begin replenishing you know whatever it is you know it, it, you know sometimes you cannot replenish what you take but replenish something start somewhere wherever it is even if it's replenishing reconciliation to indigenous peoples reconciliation to people that are oppressed reconciliation to people that that don't have what you have your blessings you know, the more blessings you give, the more blessings you receive. That's that's just how this world works. And you believe in that future because we have hope in that future. And if you do that, we'll see you on the other side. There's no fear. You have the keys you have right now. You have the lessons you have. You know how to do it. So thank you, Angel. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, much blessing to all. You've been listening to The Sanctuary Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're a source of talks about spirituality. 
personal transformation, energy healing, shamanism, and earth-based practices. For more, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. On the website, you can find out about our events, our retreats, healing offering, our spiritual blog, and you can also register for the newsletter. Again, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. Till next time, this is The Sanctuary Podcast and Angel Deer signing off.